you're right. Gallery view. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show today. I'm excited to talk to my friend. This is Gio Duris. He is a speaker. He's the owner of uh, 2020 Living Incorporated, author of the best-selling book, The Thirst is Real. He's been featured in Huffington Post, News One on ABC and BET. Um, we first ran across each other or made contact with each other, what, 15 years ago, maybe more than that, back when we were both running in, in the the fitness circles, both of us got into uh, public speaking, keynote speeches, becoming motivational speeches. Um, he has inspirational message. He's engaging. He's funny. I've seen some of his stuff. He's helped a lot of people make their dreams become a reality. He's currently in the book publishing world. And what he does is he helps people self-publish. And he's done that for over 80 people, over 80 books in the past few years, consulting with authors with his signature program called First Book Done. And when he's not out running around the world doing that sort of stuff, he is at home watching Shark Tank with his wife and with his 18-month-old son, son, Micah, who um, that was actually one of the reasons that I that I reached out to you more recently when I started doing this idea is because, you know, my son just turned five. We're both... Um, dads of young kids and going through that we have similar backgrounds a lot of similarities between the um the way that we got to where we are now and even even to the point that before i hit record we were like what do we want to talk about what do we not want to talk about and both of us agree that talking about politics is a waste of time for a number of reasons one of which is just a waste of time but two is like we don't really pay attention to that because we don't want to bring that negativity into our world so um Really glad that you you decided to come on here, um, have a talk with me yeah. today, Gio, and thanks for for coming on board. I'm looking forward to it, man. Yeah. So, um, tell tell me a little bit about your personal journey. I mean, I I know we met back whenever, and we've kind of touched yeah. base here and there along the way, and have some mutual friends. But um, give me the the quick version of of how you got to where you are now. Yeah, no, a lot of it has just been standing on the shoulders of giants, honestly. Um, it started our journey, you know, we talked about us getting into the fitness industry. And that for me was really just, I was struggling. I was struggling in the fitness industry. I had no idea how to get a client. I had no idea how to build the business. And, you know, I went online and tried to find an, an answer. So I, I knew someone knew the answer. So I went online, I think it was PT on the net that I got free through my job and found names like Jim Labadee and mm -hmm. Ryan Lee and um, what's his name? Um, Michael, Mike Boyle and all these people. And that really like started to shape. And I took little pieces of their stuff. So Mike Boyle told me how to do functional strength training. And Ryan taught me the business of personal training. And Jim Labadee told me the sales. And I started to just grab all on their coattails and figure out like, how do I go and do this? And I found success in just looking at those who who had success. There's this quote that says success leave clues. I went ahead and did that, did that for a little while and then got into marketing um, with Ryan, right? And and we worked for years and I that's really where I got my MBA, right? Like I didn't go to school for a business, but I got my MBA working with Ryan and it was just an amazing experience but I've always been mentored by somebody and I was always following some kind of model and it's always led me to the next thing. So book publishing found somebody who did it modeled, right? So I'm never reinventing the wheel, but I will find the wheel and then I'll steer it to where I want to go next. <laughs> so that's me and a gist. That's, that's, yeah, that's, uh, 
I was trying to think, was it, where was the first place that we that we met? Was it in um it had to be like a Ryan Lee boot camp or yeah, something? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm there was a couple of those that I went to that that I can like see the the venue in my mind. Stanford, and, Connecticut. Yep. Uh, one in Stanford. Stanford. And it seems like there was one in New Jersey. Were you at one in New Jersey? Uh, the one in New Jersey. No, I don't remember if we did one in Jersey, but I did go to an event in Jersey where um Arnell Rika Franca got together with some people. Um, Eric Moss, I, there was a small collective there. I think maybe Jeff Cavalier may have been there, if I'm not mistaken. But, yeah, you know, a lot of good people that we've met along the way, man, just and still seeing them doing stuff, which is really interesting. Yeah, I, I think it was that event in Jersey where I first met Arnell and um, Eric and had a conversation with Eric that night. And I had just started my journey into becoming a performing strongman so it was all fresh and all new to me and i was not very good at it i was yeah. strong but like i wasn't very refined and didn't have the showmanship and all that sort of stuff and um i've heard eric tell the story before that when we first met i took a frying pan and rolled it up into like a burrito shape and handed it to him and said join us <laughs> which no, uh, i remember the frying pan i remember the frying pan that was yeah. like yeah, i do there, remember that was your signature move. That was your signature move. It it was it was it was a a, a cool feat. And you know the thing about it, I kind of stopped doing that feat for a couple of reasons. A lot of people started picking up on it and doing a frying pan bend, but instead of rolling it up really tightly the way I was taught to do it by Dennis Rogers, they just kind of fold it and make it more of a taco rather than a burrito, right? Yeah. And people really don't recognize the difference between the the artistic like precision that goes along with rolling it up tight enough that you can like, like one thing that, that I've done many times in the past is, you know, those watch bands that don't come completely apart. You like yeah, click yeah, a yeah. thing and it, and it, and it spreads out bigger is roll a frying pan up and stick it through that hole. Um, or like, I, I've never done this particular one, but Dennis Rogers would do it. He would roll it up and put it inside of a water bottle, like a, a, a liter sized water bottle with the screw off cap, you know, and you can't do that if you just fold it up. But wow. um, I, I see people like Eddie Hall's done it on TV before. And and I'm not knocking Eddie Hall at all. He's incredibly strong, but he doesn't know the technique. And like if, if I spent like 30 minutes with him, he could do it exactly the right way I'm or, or the way that I'm talking about. I'm not knocking him at all. He just he doesn't know and doesn't care, honestly, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but like so many people have figured out that if that they could go to the to the dollar general and get an aluminum pan and then kind of lay on it and fold it into a taco shape. And like, it kind of started to cheapen the feet for me a little bit. Plus Gosh. the pan. Yeah. So plus, plus the pans that I use, um, um, were of higher quality. And so every time I would do a feet like that, it wound up, um, I would be at like 40 or 50 bucks, you know, which is fine. But it, it, in order to, to do something well, you have to practice that thing. And so and I wasn't I wasn't really interested in spending three or four hundred dollars a week on rolling pants. That makes sense. Makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, but I'm I'm pretty sure that, that that was the event that we first met. And um, yeah, Ryan Lee, Jim Labatee. I, I met Pat Rigsby back then, probably Brian Grasso, um, a bunch uh, of guys yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Fun times. And so we fast forward to now and both of us. um. Played in the fitness industry for a while, 
got out of the fitness industry, got on yep. stages. Um, right. um, I've written two books. You've written, you know, you, you probably do that in an afternoon. <laughs> um, but um, very, very similar stuff with our path and very similar steps in our past is what I'm trying to say. Right. Um, so I'm curious. I, I know that, that you're your message is inspirational. Your message is, is empowering to people. Um, how did the, the mental journey that you went on for yourself to arrive at a place to be able to stand on a stage and talk with authority about that subject? Because, you know, I, I, I haven't talked to you in a while, don't know you that well, but I've always known that you're a man with integrity, right? And so you're not going to get up on a stage and talk about something that you're not living yourself. So, from what I've seen of you speaking, I know that you have lived the things that you're saying. So there's this, there's this journey that goes on within the mind of being able to go from wherever you are to wherever you want to be. And you have to become that person before you, you have to be that person before you can become that person, so to speak. Right. Yeah, yeah, be, yeah. You know, as within, so without. So how did that particular journey influence your approach to life and specifically being a dad. Yeah, no, I think that the the biggest thing for me when it came to that journey was um on a personal level, I had a gap, right? And the, the gap was there's a knowledge gap that existed. I'm the oldest brother. So I didn't have somebody who was able to tell me, you know, around that corner there's a trap, or around that corner, there's this temptation thing that you're gonna fall into if you're not careful, that I can go and kind of open up Pandora's box in a, in a negative way. I didn't have that. So not having that, I experienced certain things that I felt like could have been easily avoidable, things that would have frustrated me because I just didn't know, right? Like, so stuff like, well, I didn't know how to go to college correctly, right? Like I went to college thinking, you know, the most important thing was to get great grades, not realizing that it's an amazing hub for networking and finding future business relationships, friendships, partnerships, all these things. So I went to college, got great grades and pushed myself for that. But then I went to school, Dave, with 20,000 students and I graduated and I had like three friends. Right. Right. And, and, and I'm looking at all the other people as we go through the years, you start to see the connections and how the connections created currency. And then I started getting frustrated because I didn't, I, I when I go into that bank account, it says insufficient funds because I had no friends in there to withdraw from or to mm. glean from. And so when I experienced that, I just knew something in me just felt like, I don't want anyone to feel like this. Like, I don't want anyone to fill this gap. And so in order for me to go and do that, I made a conscious decision at the age of 18 that I was going to go give back. So I became a high school football coach at 18 years old. And I wanted to fill those gaps and be the big brother for every other every kid that I coach and let them know what was coming. Let them know why you need to have one girlfriend, why you need to put your resources away, why it's better to start strong and then slow down when you go to college versus start slow and then have to go and get perfect scores the rest of your career mm -hmm. to look like you had a decent career, right? So that was where it really stemmed for me to like make that transition was what was I missing? And then I felt like I didn't want anyone else to miss it. Now, when you talk about the connection of now being a dad, you know, one of the things that I've learned is I've got an opportunity to see why my dad did what he did when he, he fathered me. Right. And, and, and I've seen this stuff that I want to replicate. 
And then there's stuff that I've seen that I'm like, oh no, I know this is something new I would like to do. And it's similar gap. Like I'm looking at what gap will my child have five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now. And how do I start to plug that gap now? Right. And so one of the biggest ones for me is I don't care if my kid has perfect scores, but what I don't want is his curiosity to be stolen. Mm. So I want him to always wonder. I want him to always ask why. I want him to understand the power of no versus trying to take away his no. But I'm looking at that because I've looked as an adult and realized those are the biggest places. The, the curiosity is what creates invention, creates novelty. Uh, the no, I've been blessed by saying no more than yes. So I want him to learn that versus taking that away from me. Talk a little bit more about that. That's that's a fascinating and I think often overlooked um, part of being a, a parent or being a dad um, and being honestly being a, a a functional man who can regulate his emotions in his life and stuff. Talk more about the power of no. That's yeah, I, I, think, I like the way you phrase that. Yeah, no, I think the and I'll be honest, I got to give credit to this lady named um, Amy Hayes, who told me this. I recently talked to her and she really turned the light bulb on for me about the power of no. The thing we don't realize, and she explained to me, is when our children are saying no, we look at that as defiance. Like, I told you to do this. You said no, which means you're saying that you're not going to obey what I'm telling you to do. And I have your best interests at heart. What she explained to me is that the child doesn't fully understand what no is. What that no actually is, is them discovering their own voice. So that's the first time they're starting to realize I can think something and I express that something, but I don't necessarily understand the consequence of what I'm saying. I don't realize I'm saying whatever dad says, I'm going to do the opposite. That's not my intent. They're, the child's intent is to start to exercise their vocabulary and no is one of those favorite things. And why? Because that's what we tell them. So typically their vocabulary is what we fed them in the first place. So he's like, no, don't go in the corner. No, don't do this. So he goes and says, well, you know, that's the word we using. Like how many times do you ever hear a parent say, yes, do this. Yes, do that. That's why they don't use it. So I realized when I spoke to Amy that no is not bad. And then I start to compound it and start thinking about, well, if we can't, if they're not allowed to say no, then have you ever said a yes that you regretted? I started thinking about that. Like, what was the yes? Like, I'm grateful for my, for my wife. I said, yes, that, no regret there. But there's been some yeses that I've said prematurely that I'm like, shucks, if I knew that no was an option that I could exercise, I probably wouldn't have gotten to that problem where that yes, because here's the biggest thing I realized. The yes I say today has 25 more yeses attached to it. And I'm okay with the yes today, but I didn't know if I was going to be okay with the next 25 yeses. So I want my son... If anything else, I want him to understand that your yeses or your noes are valuable and both of them are available. We handicap our children if all they can say is yes and they don't know the word no exists. Or if they are, I, I agree with everything you just said, and I think it was that you stated it beautifully. Um, but to carry on with that point, if what they hear from us is disproportionately hearing no 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 all the time um it's like you said that becomes their vocabulary and it 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 stifles their ability to stand up for themselves 
when they get bigger, when they get older. Um, I, I don't know where I saw this, this quote, um, probably on Instagram, but, and I'm paraphrasing this, but it was something to the effect of the more you say yes to a child, the more weight a no will carry when you tell them no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I, I, I'm in a bunch of different parenting groups. I'm in a bunch of dad groups. Um, I'm a moderator in a gentle parenting group and people ask questions like, how do I get my three-year-old to stop jumping on the couch? And my question is, why does it matter? He's having fun, right? Like we jump on the couch or we don't, I don't jump on it. Cause you know, I'm, I'm a full grown man, but my son's 50 pounds. He'll climb on the couch and jump off. And the only things, possible things that could happen there are he break the couch. He hurt himself. Those are the only two possible negative outcomes. And if I'm monitoring him and made him aware of all the surroundings that are going on, the chances of those things happening are minimal. The flip side of that, if I'm saying, no, you're not allowed to jump on the couch and, and, and I can't even tell you why. Then, then he's like, well, it's just a no. And, and I don't know why, but it's been, it, it's forbidden. And then if you, if you stop and think about it, well, why do we not want him to jump on the couch? Well, I don't want to mess up the couch. Okay. Let's t teach him how the couch works. Teach him what would mess up the couch versus what doesn't and operate within those, those boundaries. I mean, that's, that's true all over the place in everything that we do in life, right? I mean, if we were going to, if we were con that concerned about a child getting injured from jumping on the couch, statistically speaking, we would never put them in a car. Way more dangerous for a kid to be in a car than for him to jump on a couch, right? I have never heard of a, of a child jumping on the couch, ending up seriously injured or dead. Have you? No, no, no. No, but, but tragically, you can look up the statistics on just cars and people doing what they're supposed to be doing, driving safely and some external force comes along. So the, I love that you're talking about the power of the no, because where does the power of the no comes from? It actually comes from the yes. Right. Agreed. Agreed. And then we become fearful of it. Right. And so now my, I don't even ask, right. I don't ask anything, especially if the answer is no. And a lot of the yeses are it's probability of 50 50 right but if we start taking away the ask there's a hundred percent chance you're not going to hear the yes the same way there's a hundred percent chance you may, you may not hear a no and i remember there's a book that says um when you want yes no is the way to get there so the person who hears no the most is the one who normally hears yes the most but if we're like i'm trying to avoid no at all costs then you also avoid yes at all costs right and just to, the, to your detriment and so I think if you look at it from the bigger picture, it's like, what are, what are the, the, the moments that are going to make or break the child, right? And like you said, the jumping on the couch, not going to make or break it. Maybe he gets in a cast for six weeks if he really does something messed up, or I got to buy a new couch. But it's not like 10 to 20 years from now, you're going to be like, that couch moment, that was really it. Like that's the, And I think that's the part where I'm like trying to think of well, what are the moments I actually remember? I'm about to be 40 in a, in three months. I don't remember too many things at that age, right? So I remember right. getting lost at the Statue of Liberty and not knowing where I'm going, but, you know, or something like that. But I don't remember maybe like 10 things most. And so I think if we think about it from that perspective, then I start to say, how do I intentionally shape those 10 things versus accidentally having those 10 things occur?
Hmm. And so to that point, how do you go about intentionally shaping the things that you want your, your child to embody? Dave, I'll tell you, it's, it's hard because the easiest way for him to embody it is to do it myself. And sometimes you forget that you are the first experiment, right? You think like, oh, I'm telling my kid what to do. When my kid is, every time I tell him what to do, he's watching what I'm doing. And that weighs more. So it's hard because if I'm honest with you, I'm not always intentional. <laughs> like, 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 And so now I'm noticing that I need to be intentional with my words, my actions, my behaviors, my identity, all these different things. And that's not easy, right? Like sometimes I, I, my wife and I, we kid around and we say, we're two kids who had a kid, mm -hmm. right? So there's three kids in the house. Being intentional, it takes work. And so, you know, for me is, is now starting to think about what values do I want to, him to embody? But I also have to ask myself, which of those values I'm willing to exercise in front of him so that he sees it because he's going to learn that faster than what I say. And so um, that's really what it's been. It's really just been like, yeah, what do we want? And we, well, my wife and I have been pausing and thinking about that. And we, what do we value? We value curiosity. We value exploration. We value experimenting. We value um, just rewarding him for everything, right? We, we value little things. So if he does one little thing, even though he did it a hundred times, we clap like he did it the first time. And if you see my son, if you ever see him clap, he claps like someone who sacked the quarterback at the Super Bowl. He claps forcefully. Like, like, like he's, I just did this and he claps so loud. I'm like, he's going to hurt his hand. Like this kid is really excited about this. But I think that's something we value. We value him understanding that we are proud of everything you did, um, no matter how many times you do it. That's so powerful. So powerful. One of the one of the first things that I ran across when I found out that we were going to have a kid and, and I'm like, OK, I need to get myself to be the guy that I want to be was the idea that external motivation is is finite right mm -hmm. um so like if if he does something that that he's not supposed to do and he gets punished because of it and and the thing that he did was actually just something developmentally appropriate where he's being curious he's exploring he's experimenting and then he gets punished for it well he learns not to be curious he learns not to explore he learns not to experiment right and so it shuts all that down. The flip side of that coin is I am, and I'm not intentional all the time either. I mean, we're human, we're, we're men and we make mistakes and, and okay. The important part is, can I, and am I intentional about being intentional most of the time? You see what I'm saying? It's like, and, 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 or am I aware when I'm not being intentional? Yeah. Because that self-awareness, oh, wait a minute. It's it's like this 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 literally happened just a few days ago. I was um I was doing something. Uh, my wife and I take turns. We we both self-employed work from home and and he was with her and I was working and I had gone up into the other part of the house and and she I don't know, needed to do something real quick and and so I'm I'm gonna hang out with you for about 10 minutes while mommy goes and does this thing, whatever it is kind of thing, right? And um I got an alert on my phone from something that I was doing while I was working. So my mind was still in work mode, even though I was with him. And so I'm looking at my phone. He says, daddy, will you put your phone down and play with me? And I'm like, absolutely. I will. Absolutely. I will. And so I, 
I sat it down and walked away from it. You know, um, whatever this is, it can wait 15 minutes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I don't think he would have that ability if all of his motivation for doing things well came from my wife and myself just saying, we're really proud of you. You did a great job. And I, I say all that to set up this punchline or not a punchline, but to set up this point. Being intentional from the very beginning in telling him that we're proud of him when he does something that's been there the whole time, you know, that, that we like, but as he got old enough to start communicating and your, your kid is 18 months. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So is, is he, um, did you sign language y'all? Yeah, we use sign language. Okay. So, so we started with signs when, you know, from the very beginning, my wife would go to nurse him and we would sign milk. And that was like the first thing that he ever asked for. <laughs> and, and we made it a point, even before he could speak, when we would tell him that we were proud of him for something, we would say, are you proud of yourself? And then as he's gotten older, now he will automatically, when he does something well, he'll say, I feel really proud of myself. That's dope. And I'm like, that's, I had a good childhood, pretty good. You know, I mean, everybody has their, their issues that went along with that sort of stuff, but I was never encouraged to say, I'm really proud of myself. I did that well. And I feel good about myself because of it. And that's not a knock on my parents. They just didn't know that that was a way to talk to kids or to get kids to, to, to talk or more importantly, to get kids to think. So um, I love that you're being intentional in that way and that you're, you're promoting that exploration and that experimentation and, and that curiosity. Um, and, and, and as he gets older, it's just going to get better because he'll be able to express himself more. It's so amazing. So amazing. I love, um, I love that um that aspect of saying I'm proud of yourself, right? I think it's it's the uh it's like having the power plant in your backyard versus having to go somewhere to go and get charged up, right? So it's like yeah. the intrinsic motivation, if it's like I'm satisfied with what I did, and then because I think the praise of others is fickle, right? So so if you could go and have the you know, tap yourself in the back because you did a good job he won't be manipulated by praise from some other person. Yep. So and, and conversely, he won't be afraid of, of, of being punished, <laughs> you know, because, because the, of the external, the external factors in that. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that, that punishing a kid, especially stuff like, like hitting a kid that'll stop a behavior in the short term, but it squashes everything that we're talking about in the long term. It, it, uh, speaking, speaking from a kid who, um, I didn't get spanked by my parents, but I got paddled a lot in school. I'm old enough that, that I come from a time when teachers had paddles and, <laughs> and, if, and if you were being disruptive or disobedient, you would get taken out in the hall and put your hands on the wall and they would whack you. And, Dang. and I figured out pretty quick that I could just go right back to messing up. Worst thing was going to happen to me is they were going to paddle me. So what, right? Um, it it didn't affect me the way that it was that it was intended to do. Um, but looking back on it now, I'm like, that is a really cruel, barbaric way to to try to get a kid to be obedient. And everybody would talk about good kids versus bad kids, and what they really mean is obedient versus non-compliant, right? Correct. Right. And I at no point ever want my son to be 
judged on his quote unquote goodness by how well he blindly follows directions without question. I think that is. I understand that for sure. That makes sense. Um, so those are robots. That's not people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's the thing that I think a lot of folks miss out is that that they're people. They're fully full humans. They're not like fully developed, but they're full humans. The moment they come, the moment they're born, you know. <laughs> um. So, uh, to that point, you know, we've all got our 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 baggage that we brought into things. We've all got our cycles that that have affected us that we have to to deal with, and either we deal with them or we pass them on. There's no in between, right? Um, curious from your background, what cycles have you broken? What what are things that that happen in your childhood that will not get passed on? Yeah, still trying to figure that part out. I think for me, um, my my parents is overly protective of of me so there was a lot of things i wasn't exposed to um you know i didn't get to hang out with people uh there was this one instance i can remember like there's a basketball hoop like right outside of our building but it's in the street and i always wanted to play basketball there every kid in the neighborhood played basketball there but i wasn't allowed to play there like my dad would say i'll take you to a park and play basketball but you won't play in the street and I always used to say, like, why can I do this? Why can I do that? And I think about it now and I think about, like, how many things I'm still around for that people who are allowed to do certain things or felt, like, free to do whatever they wanted don't have freedom now. And so I've learned the the cycle that I do want to pass down is that there is um, – there is like goodness in protecting, right? Like the things you value, you closely, like if I value my house, I lock the door, I value my car, I lock it, right? And so my son is more valuable than those things. So there's gotta be an element of lock. There's gotta be an element of you're no longer, you're not accessible to the world. Mm -hmm. That I do want to repeat. What cycle will be broken is my parents in that protection also didn't allow me to make as many mistakes. So then the learning lessons were also sabotaged or taken away from me because the mistakes couldn't happen. So it's almost like if I was going to fall, my parents would find a way to make sure they caught me before I fell. Mm -hmm. In doing that, that looks good, but I now don't know how to get off the floor when eventually I fall and no one catches me. So what I don't want to happen is I don't want to get to a place where my I am stealing the lesson from my son. So I want him to make mistakes. I want him to go out and not brush his teeth and a girl tell him his breath stinks so he can learn to brush his teeth or, you know, um, iron your clothes beforehand. Like I want him to learn that my parents were good. And like, here's what I think my parents did. They understood the embarrassment that would come from it. So they didn't want me to have the embarrassment because sometimes not everyone can recover from that. So they saved me from those, but I also have seen the handicapping of not having those moments when those moments come at a later age and I have no clue how to navigate it. And I should have had a clue had I been given the opportunity to navigate it when the stakes were actually not as high. Right. Right. Bad breath. Um, and I don't know why I keep using that one, but like bad breath as an adult is almost like inexcusable. As a kid, you just like, yo, man, your breath is humming. But as an adult, they don't even tell you. They just stay away, which is worse. I would have liked to have learned that lesson at 13 
Right. And not one time when I went to Washington with my mentor and he was like, Gio, like, what's going on? I said, what happened? He said, you need gum? And I'm sitting here clueless. Why are you asking me if I need gum? Like, what's going on? And he's like, you need gum. And I'm sitting here like, I'm 30 something years old. Like, and someone's telling me your breath stink. And I'm like, this hurts. This hurts right. more than what I would have felt like when I was 13. <laughs> but there's a lot of stuff, man. Like, I, I, I think that's the fun part. The fun part is, you got a blank sheet of paper and you decide what to copy and paste and you decide which one you're going to change. And, you know, I'm glad for both of them. I'm not spiteful or hateful for anything that happened. I think that they, like you said earlier about your parents, right? They did what they knew with the information that they had and they made yeah. a good educated guess. And for all things considered, the educated guesses, they hit the mark more than they didn't. So I don't have any regrets with that. Yeah. Both my parents are gone now. And, my mom for 10 years now and my dad for a little over three. And when my dad was in his final decline, my sister and I were with him and, and um, we're fortunate that his mind was sharp right up till the very end, even though his body was failing him. And he, we talked about at the end, a lot of the things that we weren't aware of when we were kids that they were doing for us that, you know, we, and I think it was just, it was like this perfect storm kind of thing of my dad's on his way out. My son was a year and a half old at the time. And, you know, I was at the time I was 50, right. Cause I'm 54 now. Um, I was, I was 48 when my son was born. So um, I've, I've, I've done that in a, in a reverse order from a lot of people, but at the same time, I feel like, 25 year old me would not have had a clue as to how to handle this situation as well as 50 year old me did. So I'm thankful for that. But um, we started finding out more and more stuff that was going on there um, about how my parents were raised, about how they chose to raise us, about what they chose to to continue, about what they were ignorant of and about what they chose to stop. And um, one of the things that that both of them were very mindful of of stopping was any sort of hands-on physical stuff or or shaming either i mean they um they weren't as as aware of that as they were about the physical stuff but um my mother i i remember her telling telling me that one of the things that she promised herself that she would never do if she ever had kids was to backhand a kid across the mouth, right? Because that apparently happened to her a lot when she was younger. And so um, as you get older and you're able to to understand what your parents actually went through, or for me anyway, I'm able to look back and, and be like, they, they did the best they could with what they had. Kind of sounds like, well, they did the best they could, but really the way that ought to be expressed is they did the best that they could with a very limited amount of resources. I love that and, you said that. I think the, the the narrative, if you don't watch the tone, is almost like you're grading on a curve, right? Like you're like, oh, well, you know, they didn't do, they, they didn't have much, but it's like, instead of the praise of how did you turn, what, how did you get this much out of this? Exactly. That, when we say the best, we're talking about like, they found a way to make a five, a five, a, a, five, a, a nickel into a dollar. Like that's the improvising, the resourcefulness that they had. And if they had more, they would have done more. But the ability to turn a nickel into a dollar in terms of experience, in terms of 
time, like 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 I, when I said the example of I couldn't play street basketball, right? In in replacement of that, my dad on his one day off, two days off, would take us to the park from seven a.m. to seven p.m. I would have never played basketball the whole week for twelve hours, but I had twelve hours on Saturday. He played with us. He didn't rush us. We had halftime while we were playing basketball, and we went to McDonald's for halftime, and then came <laughs> back to the court. So those are the things when I look at it, I'm like, you know what's important? And when we said earlier about like, tell you, don't tell your kid no or whatever, or you said, hey, jumping on the couch, what's wrong with it? I think the biggest mistake we make is like, don't tell me what I can't do and don't replace it with something. Exactly. So when you tell me don't play street basketball, but then you say, hey, but look, I'm gonna take you to play basketball for 12 hours on Saturday. I could now look forward to something. When you say to me, when I tell my kid, don't go to the corner, I can't tell him don't go to the corner and not tell him where he can go. So I'm like, don't go in that corner. It's not safe, but you can go over here. And I think sometimes when we put a period prematurely, they get confused. Like, what, what? where's the trade? Where's the exchange? And there's a lady who wrote a book in my program called um, You May Win. And that's what she never says her kids know. She just tells them when can they do the condition they desire. So I want to play video games. You may when you finish doing your your chores. She doesn't say, no, you can't play video games until you do whatever. She doesn't even use the word no. She just says, when can they do the condition they're looking for? She lets them know what the conditions are required yeah. to go and open up that door. We have, um, we live that in my house every single night. Um, I don't know what it's like for you with your child at the age that he is right now, but if you're not familiar with this, this joke, then you will be very soon that no one has a to-do list that is longer or more important than a toddler at bedtime. Right. I don't know. <laughs> Unpack that. What does that look like? What does that look like? Um, it's time to go to bed. Okay. But I want to do this. Okay, it's time to get ready for bed, but I want to do that. And and so like every night before bedtime, one of the things that, that we do in my house, we'll eat dinner and then um we take turns, my wife and I, putting our putting our son to bed. And so whoever's doing doing bedtime will go shower right after that so that it's done. And then they'll come whoever's taking the shower comes out from the shower, we will play some sort of a game there, right? And one of the the contingencies on that is like we're going to start playing this game after you brush your teeth. Mm. Mm. I want to play. I want to play hide and seek, or I want to play. Uh, there's this game called Zingo Bingo. If you don't have it, it, it's it's a little, a little past where your kid is right now. But in a couple of years, it'll be perfect for them. Um, I want to play Zingo Bingo. Okay, great. Go brush your teeth first. Yeah. And so it's it's exactly the kind of stuff that you're talking about. And yeah, 100%. And or I want to do this. Okay, go put your pajamas on first. After you do yeah. that, then we'll then we'll play this we'll do this thing, you know. And um I think that that's vitally important for for so many layered reasons like what you were saying earlier about and I'm not telling you no. I'm telling you what the conditions are for the yes. Correct. You know, right. I mean and and that that sets sets up a a thought process and the way those synapses are firing to find the solution and then complete the task to, to do the solution, which if you think about it is a very entrepreneurial thing to do, right? 100%. Yes. Like if you go ask my son right now, how do you get money? 
What do you think the answer is going to be? Get, um, give something of value first. Close. Um, the, the I should have set that up better. Most most people that I talk to, if if you ask their kids how to get money, they're going to say, "Well, you work, right? You go to work to get money." My son, if you say, "How do you All get and right. how do you get money?" He says, "You find a problem and you solve it for someone, right? And you you or, or by solving problems is usually the way he says it." And I'm oh, and, and you know talking about the cycles that got broken versus the ones that didn't get broken in the way that I was brought up. My parents both had a very, very bad relationship and mindset toward money. You know, it was strong blue collar work ethic. You go get a job, you get some money, you save it up, and then someone's going to come and take it from you. Right. It, it was a lot of, of that very rural, very poor, very blue collar around that. My dad was constantly having ideas, any one of which could have wound up being a windfall for us, but he never executed on them because I, I think that he didn't have the belief that it could be done. And then, you know, five years later, somebody's doing an infomercial with an idea that he had. And he's like, see, I told you. And I'm like, yeah, but you didn't do it. And so that idea right there of you don't work to earn money, you, you solve problems and provide value to earn money is something that my son will, will, he will never be where my dad was or where I was and had to change. He will always be where I am now and take it further from there. I love that. I love that. Sheesh. That is good. That's important though. I think I'm teaching them that at an early age. Then you're going to see him. He's going to be the the one selling half of his sandwich at school so he can get a couple of dollars and stuff, right? So I think that stuff is so important to just help them to understand how the world works. Mm-hmm. To be able to know that at such a young age, I'm gonna take I'm gonna take that one. I like that one for sure about how to make money. You know, you solve a problem. <laughs> like that's exactly what every business has done, from Uber to Airbnb to DoorDash to sure. all these different things. They've solved. They just took somebody's headache and minimized it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, to to that point, I mean that's that's obviously a, a principle that that i am wanting to put into play and and yeah. and practicing day by day what if if you have a fundamental principle for being a dad what is it for yourself geo for myself shucks a fundamental principle just, just be present I, I i think that's the biggest thing is no matter what happens the, the, it doesn't trump who, how am I supposed to show up for my son? So Micah doesn't deserve sloppy seconds, thirds, or any other version of me other than I'm your dad and everything that you need and want is available here. So so for me, I don't have any excuses as to like what he cannot have because of something outside of him. Like that's not, that, that's a principle I'm not willing to violate or there's no counter, there's no contingency plan. It, that's... A, that's a requirement like mm -hmm. that's minimum requirements is you're going to get 110 percent from me you know it's the same thing with my parents i'm gonna give you the best that i have like it's gonna be the best right i'm not giving you uh leftovers right um it's gonna be the best and i even have reserve for that like i have an extra gear that's only can be tapped by micah no one else can turn that on that dad gear i know what you're talking about yeah, no one else can do it, but him. 
I don't care what I go through that day. There's an extra gear reserved for you, son. Like there's nothing, no one can taint it. No one can steal it from you. It's yours. I'm really glad you brought that up, that you're the first person to articulate that, that I've had a conversation with, and not just on the show, but like in, in general. Um, but but I've had this the same kind of thought that you're talking about. You've got that extra gear. That's a really good way to put it. Um, you know, from 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 lifting and from being in fitness and, and like for me, for doing strongman feats and stuff, there's a place that you can go um, internally that exceeds whatever limit you thought you had when you're expressing yourself physically. And, and I don't mean that in a, in a rah, rah fitness meme, you know, it's, it's January. And so the gym's going to be full of lions kind of stuff. I don't mean it in that silly way. I mean that in a way of like the, the urban legend stuff of the car flips over and the the woman deadlifts the car and pulls the kid out. You know, she's not capable right. of doing it, but she did it anyway. Um, being able to tap into that is something that that I learned. Uh, like it's almost like a volume controller or a fader or something to be able to turn that on if I need it when I'm when I'm training or when I'm doing a show. And there have been times that I've been on stage in front of people and had a feet go sideways. And I had to do something that I wasn't capable of doing, or at least didn't believe that I was capable of doing. And I've experienced that a couple of times in dad mode, but I've never even thought to articulate it the way that you did a minute ago. But yes, there is a place that no one else can access except this child. And it's in me. And, and, and it's not just the thing about like, oh, I would take a bullet for you or I would, you know, you know, run into a burnt building. It's, it's not that. But so so speak more to that. I, I want to hear what you have to say about yeah, it. No, I think, you know what it is? And, and this was a question I was going to ask you. What's interesting about that area or tapping into it is that he activates it. I can't even fabricate it. Like you know, there's, there's been stories where they said back in the days, Michael Jordan would make up a story that the opponent said something negative to him so he can kick it in an extra gear, mm -hmm. right? It was fabricated. I can't fake the moment. I can't foreplay it or kind of set it up. It's organic and only he can unlock it, right? So if he needs something from me, I don't even have the opportunity to tap into the gear. The gear responds to the child. So when he does something or say something, it's like the cap comes off. I didn't take it off. It's reserved for him. And if it's reserved for him, he should be able to withdraw and deposit as he see fit. And that's what happened. So I can't even take credit for it and say, whatever. I just think the good Lord that, you know, there's that reserve in there, but that's how it was designed. I don't go and say, well, you know what? Micah's going to need me. So let me kick it up a gear. It's when Micah needs me, the gear just unlocks and it's mm -hmm. not available until Micah says, I need this. Like, and so that's the part where I was going to ask you, like, do you sometimes feel like you're consciously getting into that gear? Or is it like something that's almost so automatic that's like your son does something and you don't even have time to say I'm going into gear. Like, like, like what, how does it, how does it come off for you? It It's not a conscious thing. I, I'm with you on that one. I'm consciously aware of it as it happens, gotcha. but, but I, I'm not able to conjure it up consciously and say, I'm going to do this. It, it has to be, 
it has to be a response to something just, just like yeah. you said. And, um, I'm trying to think of like a good example of that, but it's escaped me. What's an example for you for, for when this yeah, is no, happening? I think, shucks, I think, you know, I could be on like 20 minutes of sleep for Right. And, he needs me to get up, go and do something, walk around, carry him, even just having the emotional bandwidth for whatever he's going through in that moment, right? And I think the the ability to be sleep deprived, but withhold your aggression sometimes when a child asks for something that you're like, you don't really need this right now. But to be able to have the ability to say, okay, he's still a child, because when you're tired, Sometimes you can't tell the difference between who's making the request, right? You're like, yo, listen, I'm going to talk to you like an adult, but you get on my nerve and I don't have any energy. I've noticed that there's more times than not. I'm not, I'm not innocent in that I've never said anything negative or something out of bounds, but most of the time when he's able to come to me at that moment, I'm able to carry him. I'm able to, you know, 20 minutes sleep, still go and swing him around and jump around like I just had three espressos. And I'm wondering like, and the minute I'm done with him, I go right back to the way I was depleted, right? right? But in that moment, I'm like jumping up and down, singing songs, making up songs. Like there's stuff that I've done that I'm like, I don't like dancing. I dance with him. I don't like singing. I make up songs. I'm like, who is this guy? Right? Like, but 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 for him, there's not a person I won't be. So, you know, or I'm not capable of being. So that's the part that's scary when you say the conscious part, like when you realize it. I'm like, I don't have no beat or rhythm, but for some reason, when I have to make up a song for him, it makes sense and it got rhythm. So I'm like, <laughs> like it's in there somewhere, but it's not for, um, for 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 public use. Right. It's for Michael's use. That's only for him. Well, and I, to that point, I'm sure that when your wife was pregnant and you were waiting on his arrival and looking forward to meeting him and all that. And, and even after that, if you're like I am, you were constantly bombarded with people telling you how hard it's going to be and how much yeah. everything's going to change and how you're never going to sleep again. And, you know, all of this stuff that's just boom, boom, boom. And I'm like, why did you even have kids? You know, it's what I'm thinking. But but and and yes, all of those things happened. Uh, sleep deprived. Um a lot of just emotional chaos flying around in the room because he's young, like a baby doesn't know how to communicate his needs, but it's incumbent upon me to figure out his language. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so with, with all of the being told how hard it is, very few people. And uh, one person was my dad who, who said, yeah, there's going to be a lot of hard stuff, but it's totally worth it. And, and, and you're going to experience things. I'm paraphrasing. You're going to experience things that you never would experience any other way, good and bad, more good than bad. He, he made it a point to tell me that, which is kind of cool. You know, what with me being a son and all, <laughs> but, but what I, what I very early on taught myself to, to call up when I'm in a, in a situation like this is okay. Everybody talks about how hard it is. They're complaining. They're not just reporting facts. They're complaining. Okay. But there are some facts here. This is difficult. I'm on 20 minutes sleep. It's two o'clock in the morning. He's crying. I don't know why. Oh, this is what the hard part feels like. 
It's mm. going to be hard. This is the hard part. This is what it feels like. Next time this rolls around, I am equipped to know more about what the hard part is going to be because I'm being mindful and intentional and paying attention in the moment rather than complaining about it, wishing it would just be over with. All right. And I was able, I was able to link that back again to physical training. You know, like when you're in the middle of a really hard workout and you, you, you've decided I'm going to do this many reps or I'm going to run that far. I'm going to, you know, bend this particular piece of steel and you, you flip that switch. You, you learn what hard is in a different way. And I was able to kind of, my, my mind works by drawing comparisons between similarities. And I think I think that one of the reasons you and I both agree not to talk about politics is because politics by its very nature is divisive. It is very looking much. it is looking for what what do you believe? You're on the other side. I don't believe that. So Correct. it's it sets up that divisiveness. And I I learn better, and most of the people that I've worked with or coached, I find that they learn better. If we can find the similarities between things that seem dissimilar and make that connection. Now we've got more parts of our brains that are that are working together. So um, said, I, was, I was listening to something earlier today by Mal Malcolm Glad Gladwell, mm -hmm. and he talked about how um, what makes things interesting is when we have things that don't go together, but we find similarities with it, right? And he talked about how if I told you um, about red delicious apples and I told you something about apples, those are same things. So there's nothing. There's no wow factor. But he mm -hmm. said, if I tell you something about apples and oranges, we normally say things are different because we say they're apples and oranges. They're different. But he said, what if I told you that there are similarities like that between an apple and an orange? That's more intriguing, right? And so I'm being big, man. Like one of the things I've, I've the secretly amongst my circle, I've been kind of coined the metaphor, the metaphor king. And it's because I'm always fascinated about trying to find ways to speak in pictures from somebody else's point of view and make them see my point of view by bridging those two worlds together. And this is a powerful thing, man, where you could able to go and make those connections with those similarities. Cause then you can go and you reach from stored experience, right? So when you say, Hey, in the gym, I know this, you know what that 10th, 11th, 12th rep felt like that's that 2am 20 minutes of sleep part right it's like when you say i don't have no more you know from the gym you had more you had more you mm -hmm. had 11 than 12 rep you said you could say whatever you want but somehow you found that 11th and 12th rep right, right. And so i think it's super important there was one thing i did want to bring up and i think this conversation with dads and i I, I've never shared this publicly, but I think it's something that's important. And, and this was what happened when it was, when you, it, it came to my mind when you were talking about, you know, my wife being pregnant and things like that. One of the biggest things I thought of was we had a close friend couple and their wife went through postpartum. And when I saw that, I made a decision to not, to do everything in my power to make sure my wife don't have postpartum. I saw what it looked like. I wanted to support her. I wanted to do everything that I possibly could. What I did not realize, similarly to like how breast cancer is always looked at as only just a women's disease, but men could get it. I didn't realize that a guy, that the father could get postpartum. So as I'm trying to take the bullet for making sure no postpartum bullets go to my wife and I get in the way, I didn't realize that those things started to happen to me. So in full transparency, 
I've had suicidal thoughts, right? As a father, right? Like I've had those 20 minutes of sleeping got me thinking like, yeah, I don't want to do this no more. Not mm -hmm. because I don't love my son like that, but I suffered from postpartum because number one, didn't think I could have it. So why would I put any guard up to protect myself? I'm like, I'm just protecting my life. And then when I got it and I noticed it, I said, oh snap, like this is not um, gender specific. This is just a condition that comes through the process of having children that if you're not mindful of or careful of, you can get it too. And mm -hmm. I think that's the part where I, I don't want no dad to think that in your attempt to save your wife or to be a hero, that you are not going to be susceptible to certain things. And I just don't want any dad to go through that because I think there's this emotion that sometimes taints the experience of you being a dad because you just didn't even know to put the guard up or to speak. And we're not supposed to be emotional. And so I can't say these things out loud. What does that look like? And I just want to pop that bubble in a platform like this where you're empowering dads to let them know like postpartum is not a woman specific condition. And so as you're protecting your loved ones, don't forget to protect yourself too. Definitely. Definitely. There's, there's so many, what I would think or what I would call misconceptions or, or misrepresentations of, of fatherhood for sure but also of masculinity as just a concept in general, you know, um, I'm, I'm very fond of saying that, that when we have our kids, we don't have instruction manuals. No, it don't matter. Um, all, all, all we can draw on though is, is whatever our own personal experience was mm -hmm. and whatever the media has provided to us and what the media has provided to us for as long as I can remember is disproportionately portraying in like TV and movies and, you know, books, stories, whatever, disproportionately portraying the male masculine, specifically fatherly stereotype as being either a bumbling idiot like Homer Simpson, <laughs> the, the iron fisted disciplinarian, you know, Oh no, my dad's going to kill me. You know, I, I don't, if my son, when he's a teenager, does something stupid and gets in trouble. I do not want his first thought to be, oh no, my dad's gonna kill me. I want it to be, oh my God, I need my dad here now. He know how to, he'll know how to figure this out. And and I don't want him to fear me or any of that kind of stuff. And you know, and you have a, a few others. You have the absent provider. You know, my whole job is to get up, go out, work, come home. I put food on the table, put a roof over your head, I'm gonna go to bed. And then on the weekends, I'm gonna play golf or video games or whatever. And then, oh my God, the it goes, they grow up so fast. The time flies by. You weren't there. That's why it flew by is because you weren't there. You know, you see your kid for 30 minutes a day. Yeah. It's going to seem like they grew up fast. So, so I'm thankful that you brought up the whole postpartum experience and how that's not a gender specific thing, because um, one of the things that, that is just completely toxic about masculinity, and I'm still, I'm still on the fence as to whether or not I think toxic masculinity is a thing or whether it's just a, a misapplication of the energy of masculinity. And it's just, you know, is it toxic masculinity or are you just a dick? You know, because <laughs> and, and I, I, I don't feel like there's a very clear answer. I tend to lean toward the side of of you're expressing yourself in a toxic masculine way, because, you know, there are certain traits about masculine. There's assertiveness. There's there's 
you know, it's, it's a very, uh, uh, by definition, it's penetrative, right? It's, it's moving forward. It is not open and receptive. And, um, I think there's a lot of mis misconceptions around that, that have evolved into things that still exist for us. Like, you know, real men don't cry, you know, but then you look at like, but then you think about who created this narrative though. Like, so like when we think about, you say, okay, are they acting like a bunch of douchebags or if it's toxic masculinity, it's like, we're so quick to overly ex label something to justify behavior. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, so now we're going to say, okay, well, if I call it toxic masculinity, it's now a medical issue. It's not a personal issue. And I'm like, okay, well, if it's huh. a medical issue, then now we can run to medicine and I can still stay the same person. But the harder work is not to just call it toxic masculinity, is to say, well, I am displacing my masculinity incorrectly and I need to change me to do something, not chemically, but me and behavior and changing my identity and stuff like that, that's harder than taking a pill. But if I could call it toxic masculinity, then I can go and have a toxic masculinity pill. Mm -hmm. And if the pill doesn't work, it's not me that's the problem. And I look at it and say, okay, well, who came up with the term? Because the, often the people who come up with the terms, they benefit from the term existing. Mm. Right? <laughs> right? And so when I look at it from that perspective, I think what we're saying is, I don't want to do the hard work. The hard work is I have to go and understand masculinity fully to be able to understand how to employ it without it being toxic. That's a personal work. It's not a medical condition. So yeah. I want just people to be careful because then it's like almost like we look at it as like, okay, well, toxic masculinity is, I don't even know what other condition to compare it to, but it's like we say stuff. It's almost like um, ADHD. That's possible. Some people could have that. Sure. There are some people just active, but in order for me to easily put you in a box, I got to give you a label. I'll give you a label, then I can even eat. Once I put ADHD, I can go and download all these symptoms to you. Mm -hmm. Versus, if you're hyper, that's a different work I got to do because now I have to decide how do I go and react to the hyperactivity of this child, and that takes work on a parent to go and say, okay, well, how do I create aspects where they're able to exercise this energy and express it in a healthy way and so we go quickly to like fast solution but i don't think i think toxic masculinity was a fast label yeah and not it was a fast label not to say it doesn't exist i'm just saying that i think it may have came too fast because we was trying to explain something very quickly as you were saying that i was thinking about the the parallels between toxic masculinity and ADHD, right? And he said, well, who came up with the term? Well, who came up with the, who's, who's saying that this child is being hyperactive when the, the conditions that are being imposed on the child is, let's say he's eight years old and he's in the second grade and he's being forced to sit at a desk under fluorescent lights and be still and be quiet and not disrupt his peers, right? <laughs> like, so it is, is he hyperactive or is he just a normal kid in an abnormal environment? Correct. You know? And so, um, and, and it, it is in our nature as humans to try to pinpoint it down to it's this one thing. And that's the one thing that controls all the other things. But the reality is it all exists on a, some sort of a continuum. Right. And so, um, 
you really got me thinking on that one now about who, who actually came up with the idea of toxic masculinity. Yeah, no, it, 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 that's what I'm saying. I think I think when I look at that, I, I say I understand it. Like we all desire to make sense of what's happening, so I understand the need to go and do it. But I think also let's not. It's almost like the the companies that says wheat bread is better than white bread, but the same company that made the white bread did the research for the wheat bread, and now they're charging me more money for the wheat bread. Mm -hmm making money on both ends they're making money on the white bread and the wheat bread and at the same time so it's like if we're not careful we might end up not realizing that the person who came up with toxic masculinity probably still is exercising it but now they have a label that justifies the behavior right, right. so now i have to get this for it. I, right. I don't know the answer like I'm just, I'm just shooting in the dark as we're having a casual conversation to say yeah. okay well did a man come up with this to justify their behavior or did a woman come up with it to understand they understand it at a different level? Like, I don't know the answer, but I would be curious to know how that came about. And again, I think we're quick to label yeah. because our brains don't like incomplete sentences. So if there's a void, we'll fill it. Now, if the filling doesn't necessarily always match or is not always called for, but we feel at peace with it being filled, even if it's incorrect. And it, really... It, as as I'm listening to you talk, it it's a way for us to not be in the moment anymore. It's a way to distract ourselves from whatever's going on. Because if if I'm in the moment, and I'm I'm talking broader now, not just about masculinity, but it, if I'm if something tragic happens, we immediately start to figure out well, why did this happen? Does it really matter why it happened? Not what we right need now. to do is we not right now. No. Um, the only reason it matters why this tragic thing happened is so that we can prevent said tragic thing from happening again in the future. And I think that, that as we, as a, um, as a species have evolved technologically from hunter gatherer days to where we are now, I think one of the, the things that put us at the top of the food chain is our ability to recognize and assess a threat and then report it back to the others to keep the tribe safe right. or to keep the family safe. Right. And, you know, when we're talking about grizzly bears and saber tooth tigers, that's a wonderful thing to have in place. But now just like that little boy or that little kid who's sitting in a classroom being hyperactive, he's in a state and he doesn't have a way to express it. We all have, this this recognize and assess a threat wired into us and we want to tell everyone else about the threat and social media has turned it into complaining about things that we have no control over and have no intention of changing it's just recreational outrage at this point you know which again is a good reason a good reason not to talk about politics because did you hear what the guy on the other side said well yeah what about the guy what your guy said you know, and then what about her, you know, and it just turns into this thing where we have this urge to protect. And I think that's evolved into a need to complain about things without ever coming up with a solution because we're, we're hardwired to avoid that danger, but there's no actual present danger there. It's just us complaining at this point. <clears throat> I feel like I kind of feel like I kind of tangented off of that, but this is a good conversation. I like this. Yeah. I think it's, it's just, there's when you talked about the hard work the hard work is seeking understanding the hard work is not quickly fixing the problem because sometimes in quickly fixing the problem we misunderstand what the problem really was 
So I think sometimes it's like, okay, well, we need to be more selective as to which fights are worth fighting. So we don't have to rush to a solution. But if we but if, but but if we're trying to go and just say, hey, well, let's chase the problem and then just hey, let's create more problems so that we can become valuable because that's how we make money, that's where we get into trouble. Because the same mm -hmm. thing we say about, hey, well, how do you make money? Solve a problem. Well, you know how to make money, create the problem, and then you can solve it, right? So now we've just got a bunch of people who's creating problems for the sake of I know that if I create it, then I can solve it. And if I can solve it, then I can make money. And it's like, okay, cool. And so we got that part of it going on too. So if I create a new label, what does a new label have? A new label has a new brand, new way of living, medication, new doctors, new practices. It opens up a whole new world just because I created a label. And so there's a benefit to that. There's a way to commercialize that. And again, I'm not against money. I want people to make money and I also understand that you need to solve a problem. What I'm saying is that we are getting to a point where we're creating problems for the sake of creating problems because we understand that attached to a problem is money. Exactly. And, so we for it. and I'm like, okay, well, so now we're breaking things that were not broken so that we can fix them because fixers get paid. Yep. And I think, yeah, yeah. And that, that, that calls up the, um, what's the, was it Einstein that said, um, that if you judge a fish by his ability to climb a tree, he'll think he's worthless. Right. Oh it's, yeah. I love Einstein. Einstein got some quotes, man. <laughs> like, he's pretty smart. <laughs> um, but, but like the, uh, the kid who gets diagnosed with ADHD, he's not hyperactive at that desk because of a lack of whatever pill he's been prescribed for for medication it's they're outliers but i think by and large you know and i'm 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 not trying to dole out medical advice here but but i think it's really easy to to not do the work like you're saying like like what's what's the hard thing to do let's take the kid out and put him in an environment where he can thrive that's not easy to do in a, in a cookie cutter society kind of thing like that yeah but i, I think that's the part where i'm saying like if he's hyper right you're talking about well, the kid is hyper, but your your school system may have cut out physical education. Mm -hmm. So now he's staying seven hours, and the only time he gets to express his energy is if he comes to school early and gets to play in the yard before class starts because there's no PE. Mm -hmm. When in actuality, if they had PE, the kid could probably self-regulate enough, knowing you know seventh period, I'm gonna get a chance to play basketball. Mm -hmm. But what they don't, I think the hardest thing to get anybody to do. Is to, is to behave a certain way when the condition for the thing, the reward, is never expressed, right? So it's like me saying, hey, well, Dave, go run. A, I want you to go run. Until when? I'll let you know when. How excited would you be about that run? Like, I'm not going to run until when. Like, I need you to tell me 26.2 miles. All right, I, at least I know where the race ends. I could pace myself. I could go yeah. as I want. But... This whole joyride, which the definition by definition, a joyride is going on a ride with no destination. It's not really that much. That's not that much joy in that mm -hmm. ride. Mm -hmm. so, 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 so I think it's so important. Like we understand, like when we are going through this, are we taking a full picture of it to understand like the kid was sitting for seven hours and had no opportunity to express themselves physically, probably got reprimanded for going to the bathroom and doing a little, hey, I went to the bathroom and I see a sign that's six feet tall and I went and jumped on it to go and see if I got a good vertical leap. And then they get reprimanded for, hey, you're not supposed to jump up in there. And that kid is like, you know, like these legs, they were meant to do some stuff. 
And it wasn't to just flex at 90 degrees at a desk. Exactly. They were supposed to run and flex and, you know, hip extension and all these different things. And then you start, then it opens up another problem. Childhood obesity is on the rise. All these other things that these kids are not able to do. And a pill is not going to fix childhood obesity. The pill is going to get the kid to be sitting there and just be so lethargic. And, all right, well, fine, I'm not moving, but, you know, and I think that's why yeah. we like, we always fix a problem with another extreme. And then we don't realize, like, we were so close to the answer like it was right there maybe you don't give them full pe i know i had pe twice a week i didn't have it every day mm -hmm. but we had recess where we could do 30 minutes outside and stuff so i feel like there's a lot of stuff man like there's so many layers to it which is why we could never find a solution because it's like it's not even a to z it's a to z one to a hundred then we start putting colors in it it's like doing math when you like you everyone you used to do math and then they started introducing letters. And we're like, why are there alphabets with these numbers? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> it just opened up another door. Then you're like, my, my goddaughter is struggling with fractions and decimals. She's like, why is there periods with the numbers? Like, what's going on here? What do you mean one over four? Like, why does one have to be over four? Like, it opens up a new world. I think that's where we start to get to a level of confusion. But um, more conversations like these allow us to get one step closer to clarity. Yeah. And, and you're right. We won't ever get to the solution for, you know, societal, but it's the, it's the starfish on the beach, throwing them back in the water. Right. It, if, if you and I have, if you and I have this conversation and we both walk away from it improved in some way, and we become better fathers and better men and better humans as a result of that, that's all. That's, that's good. Yeah. I love that starfish story. You don't know that you're yeah. speak. That. I forgot that one. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. Um, so we've we've described this, but we haven't actually labeled it. So I'm going to put a label on something. Now. Okay. <laughs> um, and the label is positive role model, right? Mm. Um, we've we've hinted at it. Kids are going to do what we do. They're going to be who we are, or we're going to be who, or they're going to be who we show them to be, mm. right? And so in your words, how do you define a positive role model? Positive role model. Yeah, I think it's just some, it's something you can repeat that is, that, that pays off and has a positive dividend to it. So I think like, it don't have to be your parents. It could be anybody. But I think just something that I saw an example and it produced fruit, right? Like I, I, that's, that's the, the simplest way I could look at it is a positive role model is when I copy what the behavior of that model is, something positive came out of it um, in its simplest form. Again, like I said, it could come from many different places. Um, doesn't have to be your parent. It'd be dope if it was. It would be cool if we... Not, we be, we were our children's first positive role model and not somebody external. Um, but there's a lot of them out there. There's a lot of positive role models out there. Um, we just got to find the success and, and model, take the clues that they have. And I think a level, a level of humility is super important to, um, to be able to have that. I think one of the biggest mistakes, now that you ask that question, is thinking that there's only one positive role model. Mm. Well, I think that the biggest mistake is us monopolizing 
positive role models versus I just want you to be a good person, uh, like a, a, a contributor to society. And if that's not coming from me, shame on me, but uh, you got to get it where you can. And I, I think that that's the most important thing more than anything else. But I think also as fathers, can I be humble enough to say when I don't know so that I can eventually be a positive role model? Maybe I'm a positive role model in training, but I might need someone, to, I might need humble. I might need to reach out to Dave. Dave, your kid is five, man. Like, what should I look forward to at age two? But you know what men don't like to do is to ask directions from another man. So like, right, so I don't want to let you know that I don't know because my ignorance can then be taken advantage of. But I think if we just understand like, uh, maybe we've got to be a little bit more trusting and, and, and understand, yeah, vet your people, but don't stay in the dark. Like ask the question that you need so you can get the light so that the positive role model can be downloaded onto you as fast as possible versus you trying to figure it out for so long. That's why I said earlier, when you said, how did you get to where you are? I look for models because I, I'm in, I'm trying to be efficient and I don't care about the source in terms of who gets the credit. Right. I know my son's going to benefit from it. So if Dave told me something that's going to benefit my son, my son doesn't necessarily care if it was co-signed by Dave or if it was daddy who came up with it, he's experiencing the positivity of the situation. But too many times we're like, I'm not going to be positive if it doesn't say made by Geo. Right. And I was like, yo, but then your son now has to wait. So now he gets positive on delay because it needed to be labeled with your name on it. Well, like, and, <laughs> and positive on delay leaves that void and nature abhors a vacuum. And so if you're delaying the positive out of your own ignorance or arrogance, and I'm of the opinion that willful ignorance, choosing to remain ignorant is the highest form of arrogance that there is. I don't need to know anything else about this thing. I've got it all figured out, you know. But you're leaving that void for someone else to come in and be a role model. And that may not necessarily be the role model that, that is best for the kid or that you want for the kid, right? Um, I'm real fond of saying our kids are looking for heroes. And it's up to us to be that hero or they're going to go find somebody on TikTok. You know, do you want to be your kid's hero or do you want Ask Clown 420 to be your kid's hero? You know? Um, no, that's that's big, man. But I, I, yeah, this is good. This is good, man. I think just the conversation, and and I think conversations open up doors for like things you never thought of. And definitely, and it's, it's like you know, you talk to somebody, they say something, you're like, oh wow, I do have one of those. I didn't, I forgot, I haven't touched it in a while. And this, is, but when you don't talk and you stay in a vacuum. You don't ever get a chance to revisit what you had or to go and visit for the first time what you could have. And I think that's why I love doing these kind of conversations openly and talking. It's like playing tennis, but you know, you just need a good viable partner to hit the ball over the net and it's a good time. So um, this was that. Well, I think that having conversations like this too um, normalizes two men talking about the and being vulnerable enough to talk about the hardships or not the hardships, but the the difficulties that we have in overcoming things that have defined who men are, you know, mm -hmm. being able to ask for help, you know, I'll figure it out. Um, will you though? You know, <laughs> why are you going to spend five years figuring something out when you could just read a book or hire a coach or, or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, and um, to that point, it's a, uh, 
nice little segue here is I do want to make sure that we get a, a, a get a moment for you to talk about your first book done project. Yeah. Tell, tell tell me a little bit more about that specifically. Why is it important? Yeah, no, nah, man, it was something that got born out of the pandemic. You know, <laughs> I was sitting at home, and and I've been able to write seven books, and um, have experienced how giving voice and the value of it is really this. There are people who whose stories have not been validated, or they don't think it's valid because they have never seen it documented somewhere else. And so what I'm championing people with the First Book Done program to do is to stand in the gap for the voiceless. And in standing in the gap for the voiceless, we validate their experiences. When they validate their experiences, they now are able to look at the situation they're going through differently. So instead of looking at it from a delusional perspective, they look at it as defining. There's clarity there. And so I have different stories from people who are overcoming divorce and now finding their identity again to somebody who's normalizing, leaving legacy from a woman's perspective in terms of them empowering them with financial literacy stuff, where I'm starting to see we're solving problems through storytelling and giving information through books, right? And I and I think it's super important for us to do it. Now, I think that there's a, one thing I've noticed is that many people question whether they have something worthy of being in a book. And I think that's the part where I really want to champion people to understand that you're thinking that everyone wants to listen to how to be successful from Oprah, but you don't realize that some people don't believe they can get to even your level of success, let alone Oprah. So it's cool to listen to the person who's at the mountaintop, but when the person's in the valley, they can't see the mountaintop. So what they can see is the person who's gotten out of that plateau, that valley, and is now sitting somewhere in the middle, and they want to know, how do I get to the middle? They'll eventually get to the Oprah part if that's their desire, but I think too many people don't discount their experiences and not realizing that just because you're not at the penthouse doesn't mean that the fourth floor that you live in is not valuable to the someone who doesn't even live in the building. So I want you to understand, like people who want, want to be where you're at and you're thinking, well, when I get there, I'll tell them back there. And mm -hmm. they're like, you're there is my somewhere I wish to be one day. Now, I remember Arnell used to tell me this, um, a, a mutual friend. Arnell used to tell me that the thing you despise, someone else is praying for. Mm. He used to tell me that. He said, the thing you're like, and I hate my car. Someone is saying, I wish I had a car. Someone say, I mean, I hate my two-bedroom apartment. Someone's saying, I wish I had an apartment. And so I'm learning, noticing that. And I think with the first book done program, what I'm helping people do is taking normal people who have a heart for helping people and giving them a vehicle to package their information and experiences in a way that somebody values them. Someone sees them as a brand. Someone sees them as an authority figure. Someone sees them as credible. And now it positions them to be able to help more people. I'm never... I'm, I'm not a woman who's gotten divorced, so I can't speak to that. But I can, through First Book Done, champion someone who has gone through that, empower yeah. them to write that story so that the woman who is going through divorce and feels like they've lost their identity can reclaim it when they get Nefertiti's Wade's book that's coming out next year, right? So that's the vision behind it, is just to go and help champion people to be problem solvers, because I really think they are. But I think the cool thing about a book is it's just one of the best ways to package that experience and information 
in a way that people respect from the beginning. That's beautiful. And, and as you're telling me all that, I'm thinking about Micah and I'm thinking about he's growing up in a house where books are a treasure. It's a, it's and it not just like having books on the shelf and we read books yeah. to for enjoyment or to better ourselves, but like books are a form of communication that enable a person to take whatever their gift is, put it into a tangible form and pass that gift on to someone else. Um, I, I don't think that you can measure the, the power that, that, that impact is going to have on him. So hats off to you for that. Listen, Dave, it's funny you say that, um, in my bookshelf, there's a book with me on the cover. And I always tell my authors, put your picture on the cover. Cause you never know. And Michael walks up to the book and he goes dad, and he takes the book off the shelf and he always points out his dad that's probably one of the coolest things i've ever experienced is like seeing out of all the 100 plus books in my bookshelf he can grab the one and say my father my dad is on one of them and so that's the one of those cool things and his it's one of his first words was a book that's right? awesome. one of his first words was a book so 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 and i love it i love the fact that you know you could teach him at a young age to appreciate it and like you said the legacy aspect like Think about how many people have been impacted by Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. And look, think about how long. Like, there you go. There you go. There's right there. Not even right Arms there. reach, man. Arms reach. Yeah. Think and Grow Rich. And think about how long Napoleon Hill has not been on this earth. Mm -hmm. And still his words still are powerful for masterminds. How powerful about just surrounding yourselves with people and asking questions, how much three feet from gold and all these different things that you're thinking about. I'm like, I would have never known it if he didn't take the time to say, it's not enough for me to know. They need to know. Mm -hmm. And then just leave it for us. Like, what better? I, I always say, like, the greatest love is to do something for someone, even when you're not going to be there to be able to experience them ha having it. Like, that's the, I love you so much that I'm preparing for your great grandchildren that I'll never get to meet, but I'm planting seeds for you to be able to bless them with homes, whatever. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a different level of love. Yeah. The, the guys that are in the advanced man program or advanced man project program. One of the things that, that I talk about in there is the necessity for us as men, as dads to become the transitional character for our for our lineage right the transitional character being defined as that one person who showed up and made such an impactful change that it altered the entire family tree going forward and and we we all have the ability to do that and i think about you helping these people write these books people who thought man I, i'd love to have this in a book or i would love to be able to share this message with other people how many of those people are going to eventually you know three or four hundred years from now when you and i are long gone is the work that you're doing going to be impacting those generations because someone got in contact with geo and got their first book done. It's powerful stuff, man. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. I'm going to that. <laughs> um, we've been going for a while and um, I do need to, to jump off here in a minute, but I wanted to do very quickly um rapid fire questions and you just whatever comes to mind i'll throw a few questions at you and we'll wrap it up from there 
Um, cool. before, before we do that though, if, uh, anybody that's, that's watching this wants to see, I'll, I'll put a link in the, in all the appropriate places so they can find you, but where can they go find you? Yeah. Just go to, um, at Gio Derice on Instagram, G E O D E R I C E. You can find me there. We also have at first book done that at first book done too. Um, but those are the best places to reach me, DM me. I, I'm always answering those things. Cause I, you never know who needs the help. So that'd be the, that'd be the best place to get me. Very cool. All right. Rapid fire. You ready? Let's go. What is one useless talent that you have? What is one useless talent that I have? Throwing a football. I, it's useless now. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is a personal mantra or belief that you have that you want to make sure gets passed on to Micah? Hey, you can be anything you want to. You can be anything you want to be. Most valuable piece of advice you've ever received. It's okay not being okay. Mm. Favorite holiday. Christmas. Um, what's a uh, a funny or heartwarming dad moment you've experienced? Heartwarming. The heartwarming was when I left the hospital last year and I saw my son. I didn't see my son in three days. And um, when I came into the room, he jumped out of his crib and reached out for me. I'll, I'll yes. never forget it. Yes. Um, and the last one, what's a family tradition that you either want to pass on that, that you've inherited or a new one that you've created that you want to pass on? Praying, praying together at night. That's the mm. biggest one. My mom, and, my mom and dad was notorious for that. <laughs> like it would be like eleven fifty nine. We were like, let's make believe we're sleeping. Maybe they'll let us. Not, they'll let us slide this time. And they're like, nope, it's midnight. Time to pray. And I'm like, shucks. That's something I definitely want to um, repeat. Very cool. Well, once again, thank you for taking some time, sit down, and talk with me about this stuff. Um, I've gotten a lot out of it. A lot out of it. And um, I'm excited to share this to everybody. So I'm going to stop the recording.